We are continuing our teaching on Hebrews. It's called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. And this is teaching number 37. It's how the old items in the tabernacle point to Jesus and the New Testament. And when we say New Testament, as always, we're never talking about books of the Bible. We're not talking about the table of contents. We're always talking about the blood of Jesus. We're talking about the cross, about what Jesus did at the cross. That's the New Testament, the new way of relating to God through Jesus in contrast to the Old Testament. Again, that's not about books. The Old Testament is not about the table of contents. The Old Testament is the law of Moses that was in place until Jesus went to the cross and established the New Testament of grace. So this is part 10 called the atonement cover, where we're looking at these items in the tabernacle that point to Jesus in the New Testament of grace. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, which reads, above the ark, that's the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testament, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. And the atonement cover was the lid on top of the Ark of the Testament or the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and Aaron's staff that was budding and blossoming and producing almonds. So the atonement cover was basically the lid on top of the Ark of the Testament or the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Greek word for atonement cover is helisterion or hilisterion. Let's define hilisterion. It's the Greek word for atonement cover. It's really one, one Greek word. There's not a word for atonement and a word for cover there. It's just one Greek word, helisterion. All right, let's define it. Helisterion is the act of performing a deed or making a payment to remove someone's anger or wrath and then to restore someone's love and acceptance. So the purpose of performing the deed, the purpose of making a payment is to remove someone's anger for the purpose of restoring someone's love, someone's acceptance, or the restoration of a relationship. It would kind of be like a child who senses that mom or dad is mad at the child. So in order to get mom and dad not to be upset with the child, the child washes all the dishes and the child cleans up his or her room does some type of deed, perform some kind of deed in order to get themselves back into the favor or in, in mom's or dad's love and acceptance, so the restoration of a relationship. So this word atonement cover is hilisterion, all right? That's where the blood was taken on the day of atonement and the blood was taken into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, or the atonement cover, the helisterion, and blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, the word helisterion was used in classical Greek language back during ancient Greece. And it was a way that the people would seek to earn the favor or work their way back into the favor of these Greek false gods that existed. And they thought if we do these acts, if we perform these deeds, then we'll appease the gods. We won't fall under the wrath of the gods. We won't fall under the judgment of the gods. If we do these deeds, if we perform these acts, if we make these sacrifices, then the gods will look upon us favorably and they won't reject us. They'll, they'll bless our land. They'll bless our labor. They'll bless our food. They'll bless our weather if we do good. That's the Greek word here. It's the word Paul uses in Romans 3. We'll see that a little later. It's the word the writer of Hebrews uses, but I want to show you a little something different as we look at it from God's perspective and humanity's perspective. In our study, we're going to look how Jesus graciously removed the wrath of God towards sin and sinners because of God's great love for us. And by doing this, Jesus made it possible for anyone to know God personally 
and to live eternally. So we're going to walk through this and see what this atonement cover is, this payment is, as it relates to Jesus. All right, well, let's read about the atonement cover and the sacrifice of the bull and goats that took place on this day of atonement, really a bull and a goat that took place on the day of atonement. The atonement cover comes out of Exodus 25, 17 through 21. And this is what Moses writes, starting in verse 17. God is talking to Moses. And God tells Moses, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of the hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover, again, that's the lid, the atonement cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. That's the Ten Commandments. And there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. When Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5 talks about the atonement cover, that's what it's referring to, Exodus 25, 17 through 21. So we see in Leviticus 16, 14 through 15, when the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat was taken into the most holy place, and that blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover. Let's read about that in Leviticus 16, 14 through 15. It says, he, that's Aaron, that's the very first high priest. He is to take some of the bull's blood, that's of a sacrificed bull, and with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. And he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So on the atonement cover and just in front of the atonement cover. He would sprinkle blood. Now, the priest would sacrifice a bull for his own sins, but he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people, and then they would send another goat into the wilderness. All right, verse 15. He shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. So the atonement cover is where the blood was sprinkled of a bull and a goat for the temporal forgiveness of sins or the temporal covering of sins. The way I would explain this would be if I go out to lunch with a friend and after we eat our meals, I realize I don't have my wallet. I can't pay for my meal. And my friend says, hey, I'll pay for your meal. I've got you covered. You can pay me back later. So what my friend does is my friend covers the payment for my meal, but he doesn't take away the payment because now the payment has simply been transferred from the restaurant we ate at to my friend. I still have a debt. I don't owe the restaurant anymore. Now I owe my friend. I still have a debt. Also, another example would be if I go into a store and I buy a pair of shoes and I don't have the money to pay for the shoes and I put the pair of shoes on a credit card. Well, I still have a debt to pay. The debt has simply been transferred from the store to the credit card. I still have a debt to pay. So sacrificing of the animals did not take away the debt of death for the human race. It just covered the death payment, the sin payment, until it could be paid in full. Jesus paid our sin debt in full. And that's what we're going to look at in just a few minutes. But it's impossible 
for the blood of an animal to pay for a human being's sin. The blood could cover the sin of a human being, but it cannot pay the debt for the human. It just covered the sin debt or the sin payment until Jesus came and paid our debt in full. Jesus is the friend who lays down his life for us and pays our sin debt in full. He's not the friend who says, hey, I'll pay your debt, but you still owe me. He's the friend who would say, I'm going to pay your, for your lunch and you owe me nothing. Jesus says, I'm going to pay your sin debt and you owe me nothing. I'm paying it in full. I'm paying it forever. And you can receive that payment by faith. So whereas the blood of Jesus, since he's a human, can pay the sin debt of a human in full, the blood of an animal cannot pay the sin debt of a human, but can cover the sin debt. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4. The writer says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's referring to the Day of Atonement. He's referring to what we just read in Leviticus 16, 14 through 15, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot permanently remove the sin debt of a human being, but can temporarily cover the sin debt. Now, the first animal to cover the sin debt of a human was in the Garden of Eden. That's where all this started. Where did, where did all the sacrificing of animals start to cover the sin debt of humanity? What started in Genesis chapter 2. And let's read Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. God didn't create us to be robots, right? God created us to be in relationship with us. And a relationship is not a relationship unless somebody has the opportunity to choose not to be in relationship. God didn't program us to say, God, I love you, or God, I want to know you, or God, I want to be in relationship with you. He didn't program us in such a way that we would not have the opportunity to walk away from him. He created us in his image, which part of that image is the ability to choose. It's the freedom to choose whether or not to be in relationship with him. It's the freedom to walk away from a relationship with God. And that's what Adam and Eve did. The tree was the opportunity that God was giving humanity to declare whether or not they wanted to be in relationship with God or they wanted to reject God and to walk away from God. It would be like a fish. If a fish was given a free will and the water gave the fish an opportunity to leave the water, the fish left the water, then the fish will die. And that's what God is telling Adam and Eve. If you walk away from a relationship with me, if you declare your independence from me, you're going to die because I'm the source of your life. And if you sever yourself from the source of your life, then you're going to die. If we unplug a lamp, it goes into darkness. What a lamp needs to have light is to be connected to the electricity. Well, what you and I need to have life is to be connected to God. And what water is to a fish, God is to humanity. And if you separate a fish from the water, it's like separating a person from God. God is the source of our life. And when we're disconnected from God, we die. And that's what God's telling Adam. If you eat of the tree, if you declare your independence from me, if you walk away from me, you're going to die. I am the electricity that lights up your life, so to speak. When you unplug from me, darkness and death sets in. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring light to those in the darkness and life to those in death.
So as we move through Genesis, God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skin. Look at Genesis 3:21. It reads this way. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Well, in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed in animal skin, an animal has to be sacrificed. So God personally sacrificed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve in animal skin. That's a picture of Jesus. I mean, the first picture of Jesus we see in the garden, the first picture of grace we see in the garden is the sacrifice of this animal, which points to Jesus because we've been clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. It's the prodigal son who comes home. He's clothed in a new robe, in new sandals. He's given the signet ring. It's, it's all grace. It's God acting on our behalf to restore the relationship with us. The animal died in Adam and Eve's place because death would be immediately. He says, when you eat of the tree, you will die. When you eat of the tree, you will die. If we notice when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they didn't die. There was a spiritual death that happened, a spiritual disconnection from God. Jesus restores that in his resurrection. But physically, they didn't pay that penalty for sin. The animal paid the penalty. Now, sin entered the human race, and the process of death, physical death, entered into the human body. And we see that people began to die years and years later. But the immediate consequences for eating of the tree, the animal paid for. The animal died the death of them eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus pays our death penalty. The animal is a picture or a type of Jesus coming to pay our death penalty. Now in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that one would come from the human race who would defeat the serpent. He would defeat the devil. He would defeat Satan. And we see that Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, identifies the serpent that we see in the Garden of Eve as the devil, as Satan. Revelation 12, 9 reads this way. The ancient serpent, that's referring back to Genesis 3, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the serpent is the devil, the serpent is Satan. Genesis 3.15 says this. This is God's promise of one coming to defeat Satan, the devil, the serpent. God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your, that's the serpent, your offspring and hers. The offspring of the woman is ultimately Jesus. So there was going to be enmity or conflict between the offspring of the woman and Jesus. So the question is, who is the offspring of Satan that was in conflict with Jesus? And we see this in John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, you are the offspring of your father, the devil. So the religious system during the generation of Jesus was the offspring of Satan that was ran by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, because they hated Jesus. They hated his grace. Grace made the Pharisees furious. At the same time, grace made the prostitutes and the tax collectors joyous because the tax collectors and the prostitutes saw their need for grace, but the Pharisees didn't. The older brother in the prodigal story did not see his need for grace. He became furious at the grace of the Father, but the same grace that made the Pharisees furious, or the older brother who represents the Pharisees in the story, the same grace that 
made the older brother furious, made the younger brother joyous. He represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all, all sinners who see their need for grace and find joy in the good news of God's grace. So, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your, that's the serpent, your offspring and hers, your offspring being the religious system that ultimately suppresses grace, that rejects grace, that pushes back against grace. It's still alive today. It's still in place today. Satan is still operating a religious system today that pushes against the gospel of grace. He, that's the promised one, the one coming from the woman who is Jesus, he will crush your head, that's the serpent, and you will strike his heel. So at the cross, the serpent struck the heel of Jesus, but at the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of Satan. The poison of a snake is in its head, right? The poison of Satan, his lies, Jesus crushed the lies of Satan because what the cross tells us is we are loved and we are forgiven and God isn't angry at us and God isn't mad at us and God desires to be in relationship with us. That's what the cross tells us and that's what the resurrection tells us. And we look to the cross, we see the love of God. We see the love of Christ. We see the heart of God to be in relationship with us. And Satan's lies are crushed, that God doesn't love you. God is angry at you. God's mad at you. God wants nothing to do with you. Those are all lies. The truth of the love of God is at the cross. The truth of the kindness of God is seen in Jesus at the cross. The heart of God is seen at the cross. It's where the lies of Satan are crushed. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we see Jesus defeating Satan at the cross. Through his own personal death, Jesus defeats Satan. Look in Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's humanity. It's the human race. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So this is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when, when the head of Satan was crushed. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 is given explanation of this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And we see in Hebrews 2.9 that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus dying our death is grace. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death, which comes by grace, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Remember what God told Adam, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Jesus came to undo that death. Jesus came to undo that death by actually paying that death for us so that those who believe in him will never die. Even though we die physically, we will have a resurrected life and we will live eternally with God. So Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, that's you and me, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, the greatest fear of humanity is death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants, not only Abraham's descendants, but everybody all over the world. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, humanity fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement or he may make the payment for the sins of the people. So the payment of Adam's sin in the garden was covered by the animal, but it was ultimately paid for by Jesus. Now, some translations, when the word 
atonement is used in the NIV, that he may make atonement for the sins of the people. Some translations will use propitiation. Some translations will use expiation. Which of the three someone chooses all means to make a payment for. Now, some people will teach that the word atonement is an old covenant word. Propitiation and expiations are New Testament words. I'll show you in a minute. I think they're all saying the same thing. That's what I used to believe as well. And I started doing some more studying on this, actually for this study. And I've come to a different conclusion on that. But I'd leave that up for people to make their own study on it. Hebrews 2.17 uses the word propitiation. with, And that's the New American Standard Bible and the New American Bible. Hebrews 2.17 uses the word expiate. All right. And I'll give you some information later that you can study to see which word you think best fits that scripture in Hebrews 2.17. Now, God's purpose for Jesus' full payment for our sins was so that we could know God as Abba Father, the restoration of a relationship. You can see this in Romans 8, 16, and 17, Galatians 4, 4 through 6. This personal relationship where we know God as Abba Father. So that's the purpose of the sacrifice of Jesus, of the death of Jesus. Not only to free us from our own fear of death and our own debt payment, but for the purpose so that we can know God personally and so that we can live eternally. Hebrews 8, 11 through 13 explains this. This is part of the New Testament established in the blood of Jesus, this new way of relating to God. It says this, they will all know me. That's the purpose of the New Testament. And again, we're not talking about books here. We're talking about the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins, of all of our sins. The reason Jesus shed his blood for our forgiveness is so that we could know God as Father. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's personal relationship. No matter who they are on on the earth, no matter how well known they are or how little known they are, God says, I want to know each one of them. All are valuable to me. All matter to me. All are important to me. And I want to know each one of them. I want to be in relationship with everybody. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's the foundation of this New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus. The foundation is full, forever, and final forgiveness. And until I can rest in the finality of the forgiveness that God has given me in Christ, I can't get on to knowing God. I can't move into knowing God if I'm still thinking God's counting my sins against me and he's holding my sins against me. But once I realize this New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus is that God has forgiven my sins and remembers them no more or counts them against me no more. Until I realize that I can't really move on into this love relationship that God wants me to have with him because my concentration is going to be on staying forgiven before God rather than enjoying a relationship with God. Okay, verse 13 of Hebrews 8. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So the Old Testament of law is outdated. God doesn't use it anymore. It's obsolete. It's of no value anymore. The New Testament of grace is how God relates to us now. Notice that God is the one taking the initiative here. Remember, we look at this Greek word for atonement or the Greek word for propitiation or expiation. It's it's the same Greek word no matter what English word we use. And it was used by the Greeks as a way to make a payment to the gods so that a relationship with the gods could be restored. The favor of the gods could be restored. The blessings of the gods could be restored. But what we see 
with Jesus is he flips this thing upside down. He flips this word upside down in that God is the one who's taken the initiative. In the Greek culture, the human would take the initiative to do something to restore relationship with that false God, to earn the favor of the false God or to avoid the the wrath or, or the judgment of the false God. It was the human doing something for the false God. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, and later we're going to see Paul use this same word in Romans chapter three, it's God who's taken the initiative to make the payment for our sin debt so that we can be in relationship with him, so we can enjoy his grace, so that we can enjoy his favor, so that we can enjoy his blessings. We do nothing. He does it all. But the way the Greeks used it was the gods do nothing and the humans do it all. And they could only hope that their efforts were good enough. It's the very opposite in Christianity. It's the very opposite with God. With God, he does it all and the human does nothing. It's grace. And we simply receive what God does in Christ and the relationship is restored. And his grace flows to us. And his blessings flow to us, having nothing to do with us and our performance and our deeds, but everything to do with Jesus and his his deed of going to the cross for us. So Jesus took upon himself the sin debt of death that happened in the Garden of Eden that came through Adam and went to all of humanity. You can read about that in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. We see Jesus taking this sin debt upon himself in Romans 5, 8, which says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, in the minds of the Greeks, the gods were angry with humanity. And the only way to avoid the anger of the gods was to perform some kind of deed. And hopefully this deed or this act or this sacrifice would appease these gods so that they wouldn't experience the wrath and the anger and the judgment of these gods. Yet the one true God that has revealed himself to us in Jesus, he comes to us in love. He's not angry at us. He's not mad at us. He desires a relationship with us. Yes, his wrath is coming to the human race, but it's not because he doesn't love the human race. It's really because he does love the human race. The wrath of God is rooted in the love of God. Because when God looks at the human race, he sees mourning and he sees crying and he sees pain and he sees heartache and he sees death. And God's working toward creating a new earth. And on this new earth, we read about in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, that on the new earth, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more death, there's no more mourning, there's no more crying, there's no more heartache. And so the love of God is the creation of the new earth. So God cannot allow sin to dwell upon the new earth. He cannot allow sinners to dwell upon the new earth because if he allows sin and sinners to dwell upon the new earth, then there's going to be mourning and there's going to be crying and there's going to be death and pain and hurt and heartache that we see all over the world today. So at the cross, Jesus deals with the sin issue, which is the love of God in action for the human race. The wrath of God is when he removes all sin and sinners from the human race for the purpose of establishing the new earth. In love, he doesn't want anybody to perish when he wipes all sin and sinners from the earth. So what does God do? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God in Christ takes the wrath upon himself. God in Christ takes the judgment upon himself. No Greek God would ever do that. The mind of a human cannot conceive a God that would actually take the judgment upon himself, take the wrath upon himself. 
no more than we can conceive of a judge in a courtroom who's standing before someone who's going to the electric chair saying, you know what, rather than you going to the electric chair for your crime, I'm going to go to the electric chair for your crime. I'm going to take the death penalty for your crime. That just doesn't make sense to the human mind. That's why the Greek gods never never created in their minds of God of grace. It was these gods that had to be appeased, but, but God has revealed himself to us in Christ. We're in love through Christ. God takes the judgment for sin that began in Genesis. And he takes the wrath towards sin. That's when God removes all sin and sinners from the earth. So that those who believe will not perish in judgment and wrath, but will live forever eternal life on the new earth. Jesus is the Lamb of God, John chapter 1, verse 29, that takes away the sin of the world. Says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So, whereas an animal under the law covered the sin of humanity, Jesus takes away the sin penalty of humanity. And so, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, It is finished, this is what he's referring to I have taken the sin of the world upon myself. The sin that came through Adam when he ate of the tree, Romans chapter 5, and the sin that spread to every human being and brought death, I have taken that sin upon myself, and I've removed the sin penalty. I've taken that sin dead away. It's been nailed to the cross. And I provided for all people, for all time, full and forever forgiveness which is available to anybody to receive by faith. Hebrews 10, 17 through 18, we, we just read Hebrews 8, 11 through 13. And then Hebrews 10, 17 through 18 says this. Then he adds, he being the Holy Spirit, who gave Jeremiah these words in Jeremiah 31, 34. Then he, the Holy Spirit, adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Verse 18, and where these sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Or he's telling the Jews at this point in time, you can get out of the line taking your animal to be sacrificed by the priest. You can get out of that line. You can put away your animal. Jesus is the sacrifice for your sins. He's the full, final, forever sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice your animal anymore. No more bulls, no more goats have to be sacrificed. Jesus is the final sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. And our response to that is faith, belief, trust. All right. So remember, we're studying the atonement cover where the blood of a bull and goat was sprinkled on the atonement cover once a year for the sins of the people of Israel and for all people. Ultimately, the cross of Jesus is for all people. The atonement cover were for the people of Israel and any Gentile who may have converted to Judaism. But it was once a year for the sins of the people of Israel that symbolized Jesus's payment for our sins of the entire world with his blood. Again, Hebrews 9, 5 says, above the ark of the testament or the covenant were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Now, we looked at the Greek word, for atonement cover is one word. It's helisterion. And helisterion is the act of performing a deed or making a payment to remove someone's anger or wrath or to restore someone's love and acceptance. God's the one performing this deed in Christ. God never stopped loving us. He's not like the Greek gods. He wanted to restore a relationship. He loved us. He, he wanted us not to have to die the sin death that came through Adam. Jesus graciously removed this sin debt of death because of the love of God for us. God revealed himself to us in Christ. He took upon the sin of humanity. He died for all sinners so that we can know God personally and our identity goes from sinner to saint from unrighteous to righteous, from unholy to holy, from impure to, to pure, from unclean to clean in Christ. 
and then we can know God personally, and we can live eternally on the new earth. Now, Romans 21, 21 through 26 provides more insight for us into Jesus's full, final, and forever payment for sins. Romans 3, 21 through 26 reads this way, and this is out of the English Standard Version. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, we're going to look at this in a minute. Through faith in Jesus, I think the best translation is righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus and is available for all who believe. We'll look at that in just a minute. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction between anybody All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, his righteousness, but are justified, made righteous, declared innocent, declared not guilty, declared clean, declared pure, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus or through the payment of our sins that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Some verses say as an atonement. Others say as an expiation. But the Greek word here is the same, no matter what English word is using. It's hilasterion. It's the full payment of our sins to remove us from the wrath of God to come before he ushers in the new earth. But Jesus takes upon this wrath himself, unheard of in the Greek culture and certainly unheard of in our culture as well, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Real quick, let's look at the context of Romans 3, 21 through 26, as it leads up to propitiation. That's verse 25, which Again, is the same Greek word of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. It's hilasterion. It's the same exact Greek word here. Let's look at the context of Romans 3, 21 through 26. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There Paul is referring to the gospel of grace, that grace has replaced law. That's what he wasn't ashamed of. He's not talking about here. He's not saying I'm not ashamed of Jesus. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that Jesus brought. I've discovered, I don't know any believers that are ashamed of Jesus, but I know a lot of believers are ashamed of the grace that has replaced the law. And they exist today. Many of you know some of these people. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of grace that he's going to lay out in the book of Romans. He's going to lay out what the gospel is in the book of Romans that he's not ashamed of, that came through Jesus. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is God's power for salvation in the context of Romans from the wrath of God to come. That's the context. It's the power for salvation to everyone who believes. So salvation in Romans is being delivered from the wrath to come and being delivered to eternal life. We have to keep that in mind when we read Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So what is the gospel that Paul was not ashamed of? The gospel is how does a person become righteous before God? Is it by faith in Jesus or is it by following the law of Moses or is it faith in Jesus plus following the law? And Paul makes the case in Romans that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus apart from following the law of Moses. It's simply faith in Jesus. It's simply believing. And then he quotes out of Haggai, he says, the righteous will live by faith. Even the Jewish scriptures, even the law and the prophets tell us that righteousness comes by 
faith. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through Romans 3, verse 19, Paul explains and provides evidence that all people are unrighteous and under God's wrath. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul gives evidence that the immoral people of the earth, those who are obviously immoral people, are unrighteous and under the wrath of God because of sin. All right, that's in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Then in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul provides the evidence that the self-righteous, and who are the self-righteous in Romans 2, 1 through 16? The self-righteous are those who look down upon the immoral people of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. It's the same today. When somebody reads the book of Romans and they're reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, a self-righteous person is going to read that as, boy, those people, God's going to get those people. God's going to let those people have it. They're going to get the wrath of God and they deserve the wrath of God. But then Paul turns the table in Romans 2, 1 through 16. He says, hey, those who are reading Romans 1, 18 through 32, and you think you're superior to those in Romans 1, 18 through 32, he says you're not. He says you're just as immoral as they are. So the ones of Romans 1, 18 through 32, the self-righteous ones of Romans 2, 1 through 16, they're all unrighteous. They're all ungodly. They're all sinners. They're all deserving of the wrath to come. He says this in Romans 2, 1 through 16. You, that's the self-righteous, therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you. Notice the use of the word you here. It's used one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in the first four verses. So he says, hey, you, the one reading Romans 1, 18 through 32, you think you're morally superior to those, but hey, you're not. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on those in Romans 1. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And that's why he says in Romans 3.23, there's no one different. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. He's saying, hey, you reading this who think you're morally superior to those in Romans 18 through 32, your judgment of them is based upon arrogance and self-righteousness, but God's judgment of you and them is based upon truth. Your judgment's not based upon truth. Your judgment's based upon error, and the error is you think you're superior to them, but God knows you're a sinner just like they are. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, that's those of Romans 1, and yet do the same things, whether you do them with your hands or you do them inside your head or you do them within your heart. Do you think you will escape God's judgment, escape his wrath? That's what the people who are reading Romans 1, 18 through 32 saying, boy, the wrath of God is coming on them. But it's also coming on the one who's judging those of Romans 1, 18 through 32 as well. Because they're no different. The same sin that exists in them exists in everybody. Or do you show contentment, this is verse 4, for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What he's saying is the reader of Romans 1, 18 through 32 is saying, oh, God's going to get them. His wrath is coming upon them. They need to realize that God's wrath is coming upon them too. But the grace of God that leads anybody to repentance is designed to lead the one who feels self-righteous and morally superior to others, the wrath of God's coming upon them as well. In the politics in the 1980s, there was a group called the Moral Majority, made up of mostly Christians. 
And in that statement alone is self-righteousness. We're the moral majority. We're, we're the ones who are moral, and they aren't. Well, the wrath of God's going to get them, but it's not going to get us because we're more moral than them. What an arrogant statement made by many Christians in the 1980s to say that we're the moral majority. Boy, they're overrating their morality. And Paul has something to say to that mindset in Romans chapter 2. Verse 5 of Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. That's a quotation of Psalm 62, 12 and Proverbs 24, 12. To those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But that's nobody. No, nobody does that. Nobody does Romans 2, verse 7. Paul talks about that later in chapter 3. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. That's everybody. Paul's going to show that's, that's everybody. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. That's the entire human race. That's the day of judgment. That's the day of wrath. When God clears this earth of all sin and sinners in preparation of the new earth. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And nobody does good. That's the point Paul's going to make. That's why we have to read scripture in its full context and not pick verses out. Because the writer, he has a thought. He's writing toward a certain thought. So we have to read the Bible in, in its full context. For God does not show favoritism between people. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish in wrath, in judgment, apart from the law. That's the Gentiles. And all who sin under the law, that's the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, and nobody obeys the law, right? Verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So the Gentiles had on their hearts, they knew lying is lying and stealing is stealing and murder is murder and adultery is adultery. So it's the same law that's going to judge both Jew and Gentile. The Jew is under a law written on stone. The Gentile is under the same law that's written on the heart. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witnesses and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Verse 16, this judgment will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel, Paul says, declares. So the gospel of grace is established in the gospel of wrath. Paul had a gospel of wrath. Paul had a gospel of judgment. So often the word gospel is misunderstood to mean good news. The word gospel simply means message, and that's all it means. Sometimes it can be a gospel that isn't good news, and sometimes it can be a gospel that is good news. Paul's gospel contained both bad news and good news. The bad news was God's going to judge your thoughts, your desires, your attitudes, your actions, your deeds. It's all going to happen. Everything's going to be exposed. So Paul presents the bad news of the gospel so he can present the good news of the gospel. Remember, now for the believer, that judgment's not going to be there because the believers come to faith in Jesus. That judgment is gone for the believer. That's important to understand. That judgment's going to happen for the unbeliever, but the believer has come to faith in Christ. They're not under the judgment and the wrath that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. Remember, we're looking at the context of Romans 3, 21 through 26, where Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We've looked at the evidence that the immoral are unrighteous and under the wrath of God because of sin. We've looked at the evidence that the self-righteous, those who think they're morally superior to others, they're unrighteous and under the wrath of God because of sin. Now let's look really quickly at the evidence that everybody's unrighteous and under the wrath of God because of sin. 
Romans 3, 10 through 19 says this. Paul says, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Romans 1, Romans 2, everybody's under the power of sin. As it is written, verse 10, in the scripture, so Paul starts quoting scriptures to prove that there's no one righteous, that all are under sin. Verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become worthless. There's no one who does good. So God can't give eternal life to anybody because no one does good, even though Paul writes about that in Romans 2. To those who do good, God will give eternal life. Well, we see in Romans 3 that no one does good, so God can't give eternal life to anybody by them being good, but by grace, he makes eternal life available to everybody. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. These are all quotations from Jewish scriptures. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here's the verdict. No one is righteous. Therefore, no one will escape the judgment of God and the wrath of God because of their works or their morality. Nobody. That's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is going to come momentarily. Paul writes in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and that's Jew and Gentile are both under the law. The Jew under the law that was written on stone, the Gentile under the law written on their hearts. So that every mouth, whether Jew or Gentile, may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Everybody's guilty. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So in Romans 2, he says, those who obey the law, God will declare righteous. In Romans 3, he says, no one can obey the law. Therefore, he will declare no one righteous through obedience to the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware of our sinfulness. Then God makes an offer of grace. This is the good news of the gospel. The bad news is the evidence against us and the verdict toward us. But here's the good news is the offer. The offer of grace. God graciously provides righteousness through Jesus and freely offers righteousness and eternal life to all so that they escape the judgment, they escape the wrath, and they live eternally with God on the new earth. Now let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 25, now that we know this information. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. How does a person become righteous before God? Well, not through the law. It can't happen. We're under judgment. We're under wrath through the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's the real Greek words here. The, the NET Bible and the International Standard Bible, they say the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus for all who believe. It's not the faith of Jesus that saves us, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus in taking our sinfulness upon the cross. And then he offers us his righteousness, which comes to those who believe. For there is no distinction between those of Romans 1 and those of Romans 2, everybody is a sinner. Verse 23, for all have sinned, those of Romans 1 and those of Romans 2 and those of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace, declared innocent, declared pure, declared clean by his grace as a gift. Here's the God who gives us the gift of forgiveness, the gift of righteousness, the gift of cleansing from all sins and our sin record being eternally cleared. It's a gift of grace. How was he able to give this gift to us? We're justified by his grace as a gift through the payment, the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's the faithfulness of Jesus in paying our sin penalty. Who God put forward as a propitiation. Remember, this is the word hilasterion, the same Greek word for atonement in Hebrews 9, 5, meaning the full payment for our sins to remove from wrath and to restore relationship. 
Jesus takes upon our sin for us. God is not like the Greek gods who's demanding that we do something to save ourselves from his wrath to come. No, he loves us so much that he does the something. Jesus performs the act. Jesus does the deed of dying on the cross for us in his sacrifice. God is nothing like the Greek false gods. He is the God of grace and the God of love and the God of kindness who doesn't demand that we do something for him to be in relationship with him. He actually does it for us. But then we can choose to be in relationship with God or we can walk away from a relationship with God. Look what happens to those who come to faith in Christ in Romans 5, 1 through 10. It says this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God, no longer under judgment, no longer under wrath. We're not going to fall into the judgment of Romans chapter 2 and 3. Now, those who haven't come to faith in Jesus will because they haven't been justified. They're not at peace with God. They're still under the wrath to come. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and those of Romans chapter 3. That's everybody. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved from the wrath to come and enter into eternal life through his life? Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Real quick, 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And Jesus himself is the propitiation, the one who takes upon the sin debt of the world upon himself. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's the Jews in context. The hour is the Jews. But not only ours, the Jews, because John was a minister to the Jews, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus took upon himself the sins of the whole world so that we could be in relationship with God through faith. First John 4, 9 through 10, and in this is the love of God manifested, the visible love of God toward us in Christ, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God is so different than the false Greek gods that were created in the minds of the Greek and the Gentile people. God is the God that doesn't demand that we offer sacrifice to him. God is the one who brings his only son to be sacrificed for our sins so that we could be in relationship with him. It's his love for us. It's his desire to favor us. It's his desire to pour his grace upon us that moved him to step out of heaven to earth to be the one who died, took upon himself the sin debt for us all so that we can know him personally as father. And look at 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the father's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. See, God loves us. I don't even have a word to describe how much he loves us. John uses the word lavish. He's lavished upon us his love. The Greek gods did not lavish love upon people. They demanded you work, you earn, you earn our favor. And God says, no, I'm going to lavish my favor upon you in Christ because I want to be in relationship with you. For anybody who wants to read more about the use of the word atonement cover, mercy seat, propitiation or expiation, which of those words is correct? One article you can read about this is on a website called webtruth.org slash theological slash atonement old New Testament doctrine. It's from a book that is written atonement old or New Testament doctrine. Very interesting study. I hope this is helpful 
for you and gives you a greater understanding of the love of God for you and the complete forgiveness he's given you in Christ and this relationship you now have with him. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.